If you want to turn to Mark chapter 2, we're looking at the first 12 verses. And before we uh, dig into it, let me pray for a moment. Father, we, we give you thanks for your, your kindness and your grace. We give you thanks uh, for the, the gift of being able to gather this morning uh, to hear what your word and your spirit has to say to us as a church. And so we pray that as we do that, that our minds and hearts would be governed and guided by your spirit, um, that you would open our ears and our eyes and soften our hearts to receive the truth of your word, to believe it, to receive it, to be assured by it. Guide me, govern me uh, as I preach um, so that I may accurately proclaim the truth of your word to your people. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it was a um, well-known author and atheist, uh, Morgana Delasky, who once said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. And likewise, I remember actually some time ago reading about an interview with a well-known film director, also an atheist, Woody Allen. And uh, in the interview, he was asked, you know, if there was a God, um, if you could hear him say one thing to you, what would you want to hear from him? And he responded, I, want to hear, I would want to hear three words, I forgive you, I forgive you. As much as modern people might try to ignore it, deny it, shut it down, there is an inescapable problem facing all of us, and that is the problem of guilt. And even today, even today with the arrival of the Enlightenment, with the, the secularization of the West, many over the last couple of centuries have, have said that, uh, you know, that religion and, and God, as, as we move on in, in the Enlightenment, this project of modernity, religion and God would fade into the past, and with God and religion fading into the past, any lingering sense of existential guilt and sin would go with it. That's what Nietzsche said, anyways. But instead, what we're continuing to see and find and experience is whatever the prophets of secularism and modernity have told us, our problem of guilt persists, and in fact, some would say that the, the problem of the weight and sense of guilt is getting worse and worse in our society. Wilfred McClay is a professor of, of history at Hillsdale College, and he recently, I came across a piece written by him called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And listen to what he says about this. He says, those of us living in the, in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox one whose shape and character have so largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. Really, that's just a long-winded and fancy way of saying this. 
The problem of guilt has grown in our society even though we thought it would disappear altogether. And this growth of guilt has come as we've lost ways to be able to define where this guilt is coming from and how we can find relief from it. So my friends, this question is essential. Why is that and what can be done about it? Why is that and what are we to do about it Enter Mark 2, 1 through 12. This passage shows us why guilt is inescapable and it shows us the only way that we can find real, true, lasting relief from it. This passage takes place within a a larger narrative of the gospel according to Mark. And it, it, Mark, in the first half of his book here, in the first half of his gospel, he's trying to establish for us and show us something of the authority of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God come to us in human flesh. That's what the first eight chapters of Mark are all about. The authority of the incarnate Son of God. Again and again, Mark is going to show us that Jesus is Lord, that he's the authoritative one, And he shows us that he has jurisdiction over all things, over the created order, over demons, over illness, over injury, over the elements, over us. He has authority over you and me. And because of that, we are accountable to him. That's why guilt is inescapable, as we'll come to establish. But what's more is that Mark shows us that not only is guilt inescapable because of our accountability to Jesus, but the good news is that because he's the authoritative one, he also possesses something to, he also possesses the ability to do something about our guilt, and he is kind and gracious to do so. And so we're going to dig into Mark 2, 1 through 12. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy. These words come to us with the very same weight and authority as if the risen Lord Jesus were standing right here speaking them to us himself. So we should receive these words with humility and joy and reverence. Let's listen. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, the big idea that we find here is that Jesus' authoritative word grants our need for forgiveness. Jesus' authoritative word grants our need for forgiveness. And we'll unpack that by hearing the call to recognize his authority, realize our need, and receive his forgiveness. But first, to begin with in this text, we see that we're to recognize his authority here. Now, if you remember where we left off in our series in Mark, Mark began his gospel with a very brief and pointed introduction of Jesus as the one who has come to bring God's new and greater exodus. Only this new and greater exodus won't merely be the Lord setting his people free from slavery to Egypt. This new and greater exodus is the Lord freeing us from the Egypt within, namely our sin and its guilt. And that's the sort of theme running through Mark 1, 1 through 15. And then in the second half of Mark chapter 1, Uh, we got to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry wherein he declared the gospel of the kingdom of God and called his disciples to come follow him in order to be fishers of men with him. And then they, they went with him as he preached throughout the region and in the synagogues, healing and casting out demons, showing forth his identity as the divine son of, God, son of God who has all authority to conquer and usher in God's kingdom and to bring this new and greater exodus. And that theme continues here as we enter into chapter 2. Jesus has been traveling through the region, but now he's back in his home base, the the kind of center of operations for him, which is Capernaum. Uh, As we see here, Mark writes, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is his home base here now. And since he was becoming increasingly well-known in the area for his authoritative teaching and his healing power, It's not a surprise that Mark goes on to tell us that, you know, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So, so far, there's not much all that surprising about this scene. We've actually seen this this very thing, uh, this very occurrence in Mark already, just in the first chapter. Jesus draws a crowd. Jesus preaches the word. This is his foremost priority in his ministry. He's a preacher. But then, You know, some interesting characters enter the scene, four men, and they bring their paralyzed friend to see Jesus. Mark writes, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Uh, Now, that may seem a bit shocking to us. And, and these are desperate actions. I, I, let's make that clear. I don't want to downplay the fact that, uh, you know, the, these men took some extreme steps to get their friend to Jesus. And yet, I, I don't want you to picture this happening on a structure uh, likened to our households today. 
Okay, so you see most of the homes at, at that time um, and in that place would have had steps on the outside of the home to enter uh, the roof area uh, since people in that time and place would often spend time on their, their roofs for work and recreation and just spending time up there. It would, it would be similar to like how we would treat a front porch today. We spend time on our front porches and uh, we may whittle out there and sit on a rocking chair. Um, I don't know, probably not. Uh, but, you know, people worked there, and they recreated there, and they spent time there. So this home very likely had steps on the outside of the house to get up to the roof. So there was an easier way to access the roof of this house than there was typically for our homes today. And then furthermore, their roofs were um, not as involved and heavy-duty as ours are in this time and place. We have a lot of layers uh, that one would have to get through in order to, to tear a hole in our roofs. Uh, For them, their roofs may have just been made from uh, some branches and and palm leaves, several layers of branches and and palm leaves kind of weaved together, Uh, or they may have been made from from tiles laying on top of the building. And actually, for this house, as we see in Luke 5.19, in Luke's kind of corresponding account of this event, uh, this this house had tiles on the roof. And so they seem to have removed some tiles from the roof, which would have been simply kind of laid on top of the structure, And so these tiles could be easily removed and then put back in place without all that much difficulty. All that to say, this is is a desperate move, but it's not not vandalism, basically, is what I'm trying to tell you. Uh, But then next, Jesus' response to this man and his friends is fascinating. Mark records, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, here's where we start to get into the claims of Jesus's authority. Because the thing is, Jesus is not granting this man forgiveness in the same way that we grant each other forgiveness. Uh, This is not horizontal forgiveness for a particular horizontal sin. No, this is vertical forgiveness. If I sin against you by uh, calling you a name, calling you a a nincompoop or something, which is a great insult, um, then... I go to apologize to you, you are right to forgive me, and that's okay, that's horizontal forgiveness. I sinned against you as a person, and so you granting me forgiveness in a horizontal sense is perfectly appropriate, and that's fine. But notice, Jesus is not granting this man horizontal forgiveness for a horizontal sin committed against Jesus as a man. Jesus is granting this man vertical forgiveness. He says, your sins are forgiven. That's comprehensive. That's, that's vertical. That's authoritative. That's divine. That's something only God can rightly say. And the scribes, they see this. They get what just happened. They know what Jesus is claiming to be when he declared this paralytic man forgiven. And so they're speculative about this at best. They're scornful at worst. They're, 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 they don't say anything, but they're questioning in their thoughts, Mark tells us. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, who can forgive sins in this way but God alone? Who has the authority to forgive sins in this way but God and God alone? The answer is no one. So either Jesus is blaspheming here or 
He is truly the authoritative and divine Son of God come to us in human flesh. And there's several indications here as we move through the rest of the text that Jesus is exactly who he's claiming to be. First notice how in the very next verse, Jesus shows, uh, Jesus shows himself to possessing divine knowledge. He knows the internal thoughts and feelings of the scribes in this house. Verse eight says, and immediately Jesus preserving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Friends, who knows all things, including precisely what you are thinking and feeling right now? Only God. Jesus is showing his divine nature here and that he possessed knowledge of something only God and these scribes could have known, namely their thoughts and feelings and intentions at that very moment without a word being said about them. But the next, we also see an indication of Jesus' divinity in this passage. As Jesus refers to himself with a specific title. Look at verses 9 and 10. Mark writes, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We'll just pause there for a moment. Notice how Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, This is the first of several times that Jesus is going to refer to himself as such in Mark's gospel. It's like his favorite title for himself in this gospel. And that's significant because it's hearkening back to a text we actually read earlier in the call to worship, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Uh, So I won't read it again, but uh, you can recall or or go back and, and read it yourself or read it later, I don't know. But there we find Daniel have a vision of one like a son of man coming to the right hand of God the Father to receive what is only fitting for God to receive, to receive glory and honor in a, man, in a manner only fitting for God to receive. This one who is like a son of man is worshiped and served in a way that only God ought to be worshiped and served. And yet he looks like a human being. He looks like a son of man. What is this other than the the vision of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ, ascending into heaven and being seated on the throne of of heaven as the risen and victorious Savior? And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying that Daniel 7 figure, you guys know it, that's me. I'm the incarnate God. I'm the God-man who will be worshiped and served by a people from all nations, tribes, and tongues forever and ever. So yes, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. That's what he's saying. That's what he's claiming. But then moreover, he not only claims it, he verifies it. He offers verification that he is able to forgive sins by demonstrating his power and authority to heal this paralytic man. Mark writes, going back to verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus with his divine power and authority and his sovereign word, 
heals this man on the spot, thus verifying his divine identity, his unlimited authority over all things, over nature and elements and disease and over us and our sin. Now with all of this, we have to recognize Jesus's identity as the divine son of God. He is God. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity, and as such, we are accountable to him. Okay, the, the, the reason that he is able to forgive sins is because all sin is ultimately and primarily and principally against him. You see, he's, he is the one that we are created by and for, and therefore we owe our lives and everything that we are to him. And thus, if we live in any way counter to his design and desires for us, his authority over us demands our accountability to him. He has the authority to damn us, and he has the authority to forgive us. Our sin, first and foremost, is against him. Now think of it in terms of of jurisdiction for a moment. You know, we're in Dayton, Ohio. Um, And if you were to walk out of, of church after uh, service in just a short while and take a baseball bat to my car because you don't like something I said in the sermon. Don't do that, by the way. Um, your crime would be, it would be against me, right? It would be against me in this horizontal sense. But of course, it would also be a crime against the city of Dayton. Since you're in the city of Dayton, thus, you know, the, the police, the courts, the laws of the city, Dayton and its laws have jurisdiction over this area, the area in which you've pummeled my car. Well, likewise, the Lord Jesus and his law has jurisdiction over not just Dayton, but over all of heaven and earth and everything in between. Since he is God, since he is the divine one, since he is the son of man, his jurisdiction has no bounds. He has all authority. And thus, if we ever at all in our lives violate his will, his laws, his design, we are accountable to him. And this means that all of our sin, whether it be sin in thought, in word, in deed, is against Jesus as the divine son of God. My friends, as we talked about earlier, this is why we cannot escape the problem of guilt As much as we might try, as much as we might try to construct a world and a view of it in where uh, we are autonomous individuals who uh, are accountable to no one and where God is absent, as much as we might try to construct a world and views of it wherein there's no such thing as sin and wherein all truth and morality is relative to whatever an autonomous individual thinks it ought to be, we cannot escape the fact that we have been created by the God of Jesus Christ and that we are therefore his creation and therefore accountable to him. And therefore, we, we, we are accountable. We, we are accountable to Jesus as the authoritative son of God. And so if we sin against him, which we have, none of us can claim sinless perfection. None of us can claim to be wholly pure and perfectly right. None of us have succeeded in keeping ourselves unstained by sin, and therefore we are guilty before him. This is why, even to this day, we struggle with this strange persistence of guilt because of the fact of God and his authority and our accountability to him. It's all inescapable. Because of this, we need his forgiveness. We need his forgiveness. 
In fact, that's our deepest need as sinful humanity, which brings us next to the call to realize our need. Now, at initial reading, this text may have raised some questions for some of us. Uh, You know, one particular item that stands out is the part where this, this paralytic man is brought to Jesus by his four friends for healing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about um, sin and forgiveness. Um, And it's obvious that this man is is being brought to Jesus because they knew Jesus to be a healer. You know, we've already seen uh, Jesus heal on several occasions in the first chapter of Mark. Uh, And in particular, he was healing in Capernaum in Mark chapter 1 a bit. But then when people started coming to him in in droves, to to Jesus to be healed, he actually moved on. He started moving throughout the the region in order to preach there, which is showing Jesus' priority. His priority uh, is to preach. He is a healer. He does heal, but that wasn't his main purpose, Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 of going out. His main purpose was to proclaim the kingdom of God, and so he moved on to other towns to preach there also. But now he's back in Capernaum, and it seems that perhaps this man and his friends, they heard about Jesus' return to Capernaum, and they likely thought, before that they had missed their chance, you know, perhaps they heard a bit too late about Jesus's healing ministry in Capernaum, and and they didn't have the opportunity to go see him the first time around, but now he's back, and they're not going to miss their second chance, right? This man wants to be be healed. His, His friends want him to be healed, and so they bring him to Jesus. They're so desperate to get to Jesus for healing that they won't even let little things like crowds and roofs stop them, but then what's so fascinating is that the first thing Jesus says to the man when he arrives is not, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The first thing he says is not, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, which is initially what this man wanted to hear and what he came to Jesus to hear. He says that eventually, but it almost seems like an afterthought, doesn't it? It's it's a subsequent event that is there to serve God. Uh, as a demonstration that Jesus has the authority to do the thing he does at first, which is namely forgive the the man of his sins. So initially, it kind of feels like, you know, an answer to a question that hasn't been asked. Uh, You know, I I remember uh, my wife has a great story about um, one time she was walking through Yellow Springs, um, and one of the great things about being a preacher who's married is one of the minor benefits Uh, is that you get twice the amount of illustrations. So I have another illustration that didn't happen to me directly. Uh, But my wife was walking down the street with a friend in in Yellow Springs in high school years, and um, she was walking, uh, they were walking together in front of the library, and uh, the friend who was with her uh, was telling her a story about how when he was younger, he got into this precarious situation where he, he broke his leg, and uh, Amy was shocked at hearing this story, and, and so she burst out this question, what did you do? Just, you know, in the sense of like, how did you break your leg? What did you do to break your leg? But at that exact moment, there was a, a young lady coming out of the library, and she had no context for the conversation. Neither of them even knew this young lady, had never seen her before in their lives, but she was just so excited. She came out of the library and heard Amy say, what did you do? And she responded by saying, I just got a library card. And then kind of skipped off uh, with glee. I imagine like a big smile on her face and she probably had braces and all this. Anyways, um, it's, it's, she was answering a question that hadn't been asked because she was so eager to share the, the, the thing she was excited about that she got her library card. She acquired her, her new library card. And so she thought that Amy was asking a question about what she had just been doing in the library. 
Well, is that kind of like what Jesus is doing here? Is he so uh, concerned with proclaiming the word and bringing the forgiveness of sins that this man comes and Jesus basically is so excited about this thing that he answers a question that hasn't been asked? Is that what's happening here? I don't think so. And in fact, I think we instead ought to see Jesus as a, as a skillful doctor who looks not just at the broad symptoms of sin upon this world that we live in, but he looks at the core of the disease itself, and he's come to take care of that thing first. That's what he's demonstrating here. There might be another illustration to kind of better uh, show what, what, what's going on here. And if you're a medical expert, please forgive me. This may not at all be accurate. Uh, but it illustrates my point, so let's just go with it. So say you're out for a bike ride one day, and uh, you have an accident that throws you from your bike. And after that, you have some persisting pain in your back that, that doesn't go away for a few weeks. And eventually, you decide to go see your doctor, and you tell him, you know, I want a cortisone shot for my back. I'm in a lot of pain. I can't ride my bike. I can't even walk around uh, like normal. And so I, I want a cortisone shot so I can get back to some semblance of normalcy, maybe even ride my bike again. That's what you want. That's what you make the appointment for. That's what you tell your doctor. But when you finally go to the doctor, he breaks the news to you. He says, you have a herniated disc, and you need a lot more than a cortisone shot. This is going to require surgery. We're going to have to go in and do something deeper because there's a deeper problem here. You just want to treat the symptom. I'm not interested in tackling that. I want to tackle the problem at its core. I want to do the deeper work that's going to heal you in the long run. This is like that, friends. This is not answering a question that hasn't been asked. This is correcting the initial question, getting at the real question, the ultimate question, the question of how can we as sinful humanity be made right with the God that we have sinned against? That's the real question. That's the question that trumps every other question. This man was going to Jesus for healing from his paralysis, but Jesus sees the deeper need. What this man truly needs is forgiveness. Primarily and principally, he needs relief from his guilt and reconciliation to his God. I actually came across the testimony of a man this week through Vaughn Roberts, and he tells the story of this man who had, a, who had a tragic accident when he was a young boy that left him paralyzed and unable to walk and bound to, to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And he was speaking at an event in England uh, that Roberts had attended, and he was sharing his story as a Christian. And so they carried this man up to the stage, and they moved the mic down for him, and he starts telling his story. He starts to tell those present about his accident and about how he'd never walk again and how, yes, it would be amazing, he said, if he could walk again, if he could run again. He said, I, I used to play sports when I was a little boy, and I, I loved playing, I loved running, I loved playing sports. But he says, you know, as much as I'd love to be able to walk again, an even greater miracle has happened. Because a few years ago, I heard the good news about Jesus. And I came to find out about his forgiveness. And I trusted in him, and I began to know that he had truly forgiven me. And that changed everything. It changed my relationship with God. It didn't change the wheelchair but it changed the way I looked at the world because I wasn't just thinking now everything is miserable because I'm in a wheelchair. I was thinking I know the living God and he loves me. 
And he began to heal me inwardly, not not physically, but he began to change me into the kind of person that I want to become. I'm still a long way from that, but it's begun. And if he had just healed me physically, well, I would have had the opportunity to run around for a few years. But the reality is that this body is getting old. And eventually I'd lose the ability to run around anyways. And then I'd die and I'd have to face God as my judge. Now I know that I've got nothing to fear on that day. And I can look forward to a new world where I will be raised by him and know him and love him and worship him and where I, where I will indeed run for all of eternity. Friends, do you see how forgiveness is the deeper need? It's the deepest need. I know it's easy for us to, to come to Jesus as if he's a, a divine butler there to meet our felt needs. It's so easy to construct a Jesus that's there to meet our felt needs. It's so easy to construct a Jesus who we see as one who's going to to merely, who's merely there to grant us relief from physical illness, or who's there to grant us what we desire in psychological wellness, or who's there to grant us relief from social struggles and injustices, and, and all of those things are perfectly legitimate needs that deserve our attention and compassion. I don't mean to, to undermine that. And yet none of them is our deepest need, our greatest problem, is the fact that we've been separated from God because of our sin and we are under his condemnation in just wrath. And thus our greatest need as sinful humanity is forgiveness. Our greatest need is relief from our guilt and reconciliation to him. If he, if, if he could fix every other problem in our lives, which he could, if he fixed every other problem in our lives, if he did that and yet still didn't forgive us, we'd still be guilty. We'd still long to hear those words of absolution, those words that both Woody Allen and and Margana Delasky longed to hear, I forgive you. This is the best news we could possibly hear this morning is that Christ is gracious and kind to grant us this very gift in himself. So look with me last, the call to receive his forgiveness. You know, one of the interesting bits about this passage are the differing characters present and their differing responses to Jesus here. One of the obvious groups is that of the scribes. You should know, we're starting to get into the section of Mark filled with conflict. Mark and scholars call this passage and others like it the conflict passages. Jesus is establishing his authority on earth as the Son of Man, and he's not going to do it without opposition. And so we see the first of, of the opposition from religious leaders, the scribes and, and others, the Pharisees, will come in Israel. Uh, we see that here in our passage. And so they respond to Jesus' words and actions here with speculation and scorn. They're angry. We'll find out more about that as we work through Mark. But suffice it to say, they're, they're speculative, they're scornful, they're angry. Another group here is the crowd. They're amused. They're even amazed by Jesus, Right? They find him to be intriguing, interesting. They find him to be fascinating, maybe even attractive, which is all well and good. That's natural even. Jesus is the most fascinating figure from human history. Of course we should be amazed at him, but that still falls short of the kind of response God is calling us to in this passage. He's calling us instead to have the kind of response of Jesus that this paralytic 
and his four friends have. And that's the response of faith. Faith is what receives Christ's forgiveness. What is faith? Faith is heartfelt trust in Christ that leads you to entrust yourself to him. Heartfelt trust in Christ, which leads you to entrust yourself to him. That's what faith is. A non-Christian friend, present this morning, listening on the live stream. I wonder if you realize that spiritually speaking, you are in the very same place as this paralyzed man here. Spiritually speaking, you're looking into a mirror when you look at this paralytic man. You are utterly helpless utterly helpless to make yourself right with God. The only way that you can be made right with God is to come to him helpless as you are and turn yourself over to him. That's what you must do in order to be forgiven today, to receive this forgiveness of sins from the only one who can give it to you. You must trust in him and entrust yourself to him. It won't solve all your problems. It won't make your life easy. Jesus may not meet all of your felt needs, but he will meet your deepest and most desperate need. He will forgive you for your sins. He will relieve you from your guilt. He will reconcile you to your God. If you, talk, if you want to talk more after the service, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to touch base with you and pray with you and meet with you. Don't wait. You need to trust in Christ. You need to receive his forgiveness. This is your most urgent and primary need in life. But then not just for non-Christians. This message is for Christians too. Christian, I, I, I hope you see today that this forgiveness and our need of it is something that we should never get past and never get over. I hope we never become so respectable at Veritas that we no longer see our desperate need for Jesus and his words of absolution. And some of us might be prone to becoming More like one of these religious types, these scribes here in Mark 2 that fail to see our own guilt before God and thus our own desperate need for forgiveness. Maybe this morning, you're even, as you hear me up here, you're you're thinking like an entire sermon about forgiveness? Come on, we're we're Christians. We need a little bit more than that. Give us something a little little, uh, better than the ABCs of the Christian faith. Give us something a little deeper than that. Friend, that is your spiritual pride talking. You need to repent. You are not seeing yourself as a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and grace. We are sinners, and we need his forgiveness. And maybe for others of us, spiritual pride is not the issue. Maybe for some of us, this can be hard for us because we so often can be more prone to viewing Jesus as as an angry, impatient God, reluctant to give us forgiveness. He's not. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 tells us. That's what we see in Jesus here, isn't it? He's merciful, he's kind. He's abounding in love. He's forgiving. We can tend to forget that, and so we need to be reminded again and again. And this text gives us an appropriate occasion to be reminded of this. As I mentioned earlier, this is is the, the sort of predominant theme of Mark's gospel is the authority of Jesus, which is so clearly demonstrated here. 
And with that, isn't it interesting that one of the first actions we see Jesus perform in this gospel to demonstrate his divine authority and with his divine authority is that of forgiving and healing. He uses his divine authority at first not to crush his enemies, not to demean his adversaries, not to humiliate us, but to forgive those who have sinned against him and to heal this man from what paralyzes him. This is revealing the heart of Jesus to us. He is a kind and forgiving Savior, and we need to be reminded of that again and again and again. You know, I see that, honestly, as part of my vocation as a pastor and preacher is, is to remind you over and over and over again the kindness and forgiveness of Jesus. Martin Luther says, I remind my people of this every week because every week they forget it. I don't know if you've seen the movie Goodwill Hunting. Uh, in that movie, uh, I don't remember Robin Williams' character's name, uh, but Matt Damon's character, Will, he comes to see Robin Williams, who's like his, his therapist, and he comes to him one day, and they're, they're looking at photos of, of Will's injuries from the, the severe abuse that his father inflicted upon him as he was growing up. And Williams tells Will, Damon's character, he says, you know, this is not your fault. And Will goes, yeah, I know, just kind of dismisses him. He goes, no, this is not your fault. He goes, yeah, I know, I know, just dismisses him. And Williams tells him again and again and again until it finally penetrates Will's heart and he comes to truly receive and believe that reality. Friends, we need to hear this good news of forgiveness again and again because this good news of forgiveness can so often be a matter of abstract theory to us. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed and, and we think we believe it, but it's just a matter of abstract theory to us. We very, might, very well might verbally affirm the kindness of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. But has it truly penetrated our hearts? Do we really believe it? In reality, when stuck in the slough of despond and struggling with sin and guilt and suffering, when overwhelmed by temptations and trials, do we, do we view and picture Jesus as standing in heaven over us with a furled brow waving his finger at us? Do we view him as, as having something as, of an aversion to us as sinful humanity? Or do we believe him, do we view him as this text reveals him to be? Namely, eager to love, eager to forgive, eager to heal, to serve, to make new. This text shows us the real Jesus, not the Jesus of our imaginations. It shows us a Jesus who is kind, who forgives broken sinners that come to him. That is revealed here in Mark 2, 1 through 12, but perhaps it's revealed nowhere more clearly than what we'll see Jesus come to do later in Mark. Remember and, and recognize here, Forgiveness was not a cheap thing for Jesus. Friends, your sins are forgiven is not something he can just say flippantly. It's not something he gives on a whim. It's not so easy to just say it and it's done. In one sense it is, but in another sense it's not. And that's getting at this, this question that he asks the scribes here, which is baffling. That question is, is, this question is incredibly mysterious and difficult to answer. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
Indeed, which is easier? On the one hand, it's so easy to just say, yeah, you're forgiven. I can say that to you right now. And it's an astounding miracle to actually heal someone of their paralysis on the spot. At first glance, it seems that Jesus is saying, you know, anyone can simply utter words of forgiveness, but not everyone can heal. Therefore, to demonstrate my authority to you, I'm going to heal this man on the spot. Pow! It seems like he's saying that healing is harder than forgiveness. But if you keep reading in Mark's gospel, you do come to find that forgiveness is actually the harder thing. Mainly because forgiveness requires more than just Jesus exercising his divine authority as God. It involves Jesus suffering and dying as a man. As Tim Keller says about this passage, the shadow of the cross is beginning to fall on Jesus here. Because since Jesus is the God-man, the authoritative one, the one to whom we are accountable for our sin, and because he is perfectly righteous and good and just, he can't simply wink at our sin. He can't simply overlook it. He can't just simply forgive it like this. If he did, he would no longer be a good or just or righteous God. You know, just like we would call a a judge who looks the other way at crime in a city, a bad and corrupt judge. God would not be good if he simply overlooked our sin. It must be punished. Justice demands it. It must be punished. And yet, as we see demonstrated here, in his deep love for us and kindness and grace, he is moved to take that just punishment upon himself. Because of his love, kindness, and grace, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, decided to step into our humanity as the Son of Man. And as such, he lived the perfect life that we have failed to live. And as perfect humanity, he died the sinner's death on the cross that we deserve to die thus taking the penalty that we deserve. And because the penalty has been paid, he can truly and freely declare to a son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Friends, today you can hear these very words and be certain that they are true. You don't need to be continually weighed down by the strange persistence of guilt Unlike Lasky or Alan, you, you, you can know you have someone to forgive you, and he does. Because of what he's done on Calvary, if you trust in him, you are forgiven. There's no question. Because the one who has authority to say it is also the one who died to secure it. Rest assured, you are forgiven. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for the good news of the forgiveness of sins. We thank you that you sent Jesus as the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And we thank you even more that he died to secure that for us forever, to meet our deepest and most abiding need, to solve our greatest and most persistent problem, the fact that that we are guilty and separated from you. We pray for those who are not yet trusting in Christ this morning. We pray that you would grant them true belief and true repentance to receive the forgiveness of sins. And for those of us 
who have already begun to trust in Jesus, we pray that you would grow us in assurance that these words are true and that you would help us to live continually more and more into the freedom that they provide. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen.